This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson, and very happy to have with me back on the show, Ignacio Rosado. Ignacio, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm happy to be back so soon. Uh, I think this is this makes it back-to-back pieces where I get to be here and you know go a bit deeper on on the piece and explain uh what the hell was i thinking when writing it so yeah no it's it's always uh it's always fun and it's always awesome for me to uh, have a place to talk about basketball so here i am yeah i'm really looking forward to going through this piece with you i think it's a fascinating article that's very different from a lot of the stuff we've done over at no ceilings but i think also very important to sort of you know, getting the grasp of draft coverage and, you know, one of the most fun and most chaotic moments of any NBA draft night is when all the draft night trades start streaming through, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, there's chaos of who's wearing what hat, who's going to what team, you know, players being interviewed before they know where they're actually going to end up NBA wise. And, you know, the sort of chaos of the night itself is all well and good and plenty of fun, but, It's the kind of thing where, you know, again, as you mentioned in the piece, you think that there might be an NBA equivalent to what the NFL has in terms of the draft trade value chart or really anything sort of more specific than, hey, this team won that draft night trade, that team won this other draft night trade. You know, I think it's very cool that you put together something a lot more specific and a lot more detailed. So before we sort of get into looking at some of the individual trades, I just wanted to ask you sort of about your methodology for this. And you detail all of it very clearly in the article, which everybody should go read over at noceilingsmba.com if you haven't yet. Totally free. Good plug there. Did my best. Um, but you know, I did want to just sort of ask you about the methodology in a bit more detail. So why did you end up deciding on the criteria that you did for evaluating the draft night trades in this piece? So the first thing I, I thought it like the piece came up from actually you mentioned it following the NFL draft and realizing that they have way more tools uh, to make decisions that are at least publicly available than NBA teams do. And of course, I think this research has been done way better by way smarter people than me at NBA front offices, I like to think. Um, and so I thought about, okay, we don't have, like like you mentioned, a trade value chart, or we do have it, but the last time it was updated was 2009. 
uh, it was done uh, on uh, basketball reference. Uh, and, and also the thing that brought me here was the uh, notion in the NFL draft that if you trade up in the first round for anything other than a quarterback, uh, the team that trades up ends up overpaying. And so I started to think about the NBA draft and, and, and recent trades. And I, I, I said to myself, okay, let's see how far back I can go and look at trades and see how many times the team that traded up ended up overpaying. And the, the, the way I, I settled on it, because there's a lot of things and I asked a couple of, of my friends on, on NBA front offices about this piece. And I, the first thing I got was pushback uh, because they said, uh, you can't really evaluate a trade without considering contracts and team contacts and et cetera. And so the first thing I did was to remove all trades were with uh, active players. So no um, the Bulls trading Jimmy Butler and getting the picks to select Laurie Markkinen and I think it was Justin Patton back in 2017. Um, w one of the trades that almost ended up making it is the Donovan Mitchell trade also in 2017 because it was clearly a team trying to move up in the draft, but it also it involved an active player in uh, Trey Lyles back then. So I didn't feel like... I think you needed to take into account that the Jazz were maybe going into a rebuild and the, the Nuggets were kind of on the door of the playoffs and thought about getting, you know, somebody more that fit what they had. And, and they were two teams in different timelines. So when you have to analyze trades that involve active players you have to take a lot more into account than who got the best player in the draft so i eliminated those trades that's that was the first thing in the methodology just look at trades where teams traded picks or teams traded picks for money and the second thing i did was to uh limit the the the, the time the period of the drafts that I was going to look at and I settled on 2014 to 2019. I felt like if we're, we start talking about 2013 and, and before that, I think the NBA was way different and the NBA underwent massive a massive shift and in you know the play style and the, from that the type of players that get selected and are valuable in the draft. I feel like it it underwent mass a massive change between 2014 and 2019. So I think anything before that doesn't really reflect what's going on in the NBA right now. And from 2020 onwards, I felt like um, players haven't completed like the 2020 players selected in the 2020 draft haven't played even their third full season at the NBA level yet. So I feel like it's a little too early to see who got the best player in, in, in those trades. And also uh, a majority of the trades made from the 2020 draft onwards uh, were for draft picks that haven't conveyed yet. So I can't really say who got the best player in a trade where there are players yet to be selected from that trade. So that was a bit of, of, the, of the methodology or, or that was a bit of me trying to limit the scope of the, the trades that I went to look at. And the final thing is the metric that I ended up using as reference to see who got the best player in, in the trade. I asked in the no ceilings chat, I asked friends in NBA Twitter and I asked friends in NBA front offices and the best publicly available metric that I could find was the LeBron metric done mm -hmm. by the people at B-Ball Index. Um, some people um, from front office has said anything based on PIPM should be good to go. And this one takes a bit of PIPM there in the formula. So I wanted to do something that, as they put it in the site, 
uh, it measures the impact the player has on their team. Uh, it, it's not really a measurement of talent, but a measurement of the impact that a player has had. And so I thought uh, when teams look for something in the draft, they look for impact. Uh, and so I, I think if you get the player who made the most impact, you probably won the trade. So that's a bit of, you know, the, 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 the method and what I went to look at at every one of the 60-plus trades that I discussed in the piece. Yeah, I mean, with the catch-all metric, you know, you're going to ask seven people and you're going to get eight different opinions. But, you know, I think ultimately it's the kind of thing where this is probably one of the metrics because it's going to make the smallest number of people upset, which means it's yeah. probably the right metric to use for it. But, you know, I think it is really interesting that even in this sort of range that you defined, as you mentioned, that, you know, there's one thing to sort of be like, oh, it's the chaos of draft night. There are so many trades. It's another thing to to look at you know, just the list of trades that you have for this piece and be like, wow, that was a lot of movement of players and, you know, potential future draft picks. Just a lot of movement just in that five-year span that you covered. And let's sort of start diving into the original, the specific trades that we have here from draft night. And I think you put it perfectly before we get into the section, but it's not certainly the conclusion that I might've expected, which is, you know, the first one of these trades of trading up for a player that comes to mind for people is the Markel Fultz trade that ended up being disastrous for Philadelphia and fantastic for the Boston Celtics. But, you know, it's funny to me that, as you mentioned in the piece, that trade was really kind of the exception that proves the rule in the sense that, you know, sure, that trade ended up working out well for Boston, but basically everything had to go wrong for Philadelphia for it to turn out that way. And the flip side is in every other case where, you know, everything didn't go disastrously wrong turned out that, you know, most of the time when teams are calling to trade up, as you say, they probably know something that you don't. Yeah. That, that was surprising for me as well. I think the, the Marco faults is kind of the cautionary tale, uh, about not trading up in the draft. Uh, but I also had the Luca, um, the Luka Doncic trade in mind where, mm -hmm. um, you know, Luka goes to Dallas uh, with the third pick and uh, the Hawks select Trey Young and then they got the, the a first round pick to select Cam Reddish. And it was maybe close to some people for a few years, but now I think we all have clearly Luka ahead of Trey and clearly Dallas winning the trade, especially after... Cam Reddish is no, didn't do, didn't provide much impact for the Hawks. Um, and so I went to look at all the other trades in the segment and I found that, you know, the team who traded up got the best player. And in most cases, it wasn't even close. Uh, you could argue that the Alfred Payton for Dario Saric and Willie Hernan Gomez and Landry Schmidt. Uh, trade was close, and if you take those three players, you know you can have Philadelphia winning the trade. But Peyton was—we're talking about uh, peak seasons here. Peyton had, according to the LeBron metric, the the highest peak. Uh, you could also argue about the Shavas Napier uh, trade, where Charlotte ha got Samaj Christen, PJ Hurston. And Jalen Noel uh, don't want to diss anybody here, but not really the most impactful players on either side of the table. Um, but uh, Napier, not for Miami, but ended up enjoying maybe a couple of seasons as an impactful player off the bench. Uh, so, yeah, but beyond those two trades, none of the trades here were particularly close. Uh the Tyus Jones trade uh, for Chetty Osman is, is the best player in that trade. And, and Tyus Jones ended up becoming a starting point guard at some point. Obviously, the Shea Gilchers-Alexander trade for Miles Bridges and a couple more players. Uh, yeah, it, it, it has... Obviously, I think the McCall Bridges trade is another one of those uh, that wasn't even close. Uh, so it... It, not only the teams who traded up won eight out of nine times, 
when they won, it wasn't particularly close. There's a fascinating element of this to me, which doesn't track anywhere near as perfectly as the, you know, eight out of nine trades being beneficial for the team that traded up. But just looking down the list of trades here, a lot of them really seem to follow a pattern for me of, you know, trading up to get someone who's sort of seen in their draft as more of a quote unquote sure thing and taking a risk with the picks that you're trading down for. I mean, me being me, I would have to mention the Sacramento Kings trade on this list, but you know, essentially what they did is they traded for someone who was a bit more of a sure thing value wise in Zach Collins and traded down, you know, took someone who was granted seen as a relatively sure thing that didn't turn out that way in Justin Jackson. But really what they did was they took a swing on 20 with Harry Giles. And, you know, similarly with Mikhail Bridges, right? I mean, Zaire Smith's career ended up being, you know, plagued by health issues, you know, certainly unexpected health issues. That's, you know, not something I want to discount here, but it's a similar sort of thing of, you know, Mikhail Bridges was seen as a very sort of sure thing prospect. And, you know, we get to the bottom of the list with, Tyus Jones, I mean, he's one of the steadiest, you know, he and his brother Trey have made careers for themselves as incredibly steady, you know, 31st point guards in the league, right? Like can be a starter for a team that doesn't have much point guard depth, can be a really solid backup who doesn't make many mistakes for a team that doesn't have as much point guard depth. You know, again, it doesn't track as neatly as the, hey, the team that traded up won pretty much every time, but even with the trade where the team that traded up ended up losing out in the Markel Fultz trade. I mean, you mentioned it in the piece, but there was, you know, a lot of questions. And I certainly raised my hand as someone who got it very wrong with my Jason Tatum evaluation, but there were, you know, certainly Jason Tatum step skeptics of, can he be an efficient offensive player at the NBA level, given what his shot diet looked at at Duke and, you know, again, that was a learning experience for me because I was very, very wrong about it. But it was the kind of thing where Markel Fultz was seen as a, you know, safe, clear number one overall choice in that draft. And, you know, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong for Markel Fultz in his first few years went wrong for him. But it is very interesting to me that the value proposition for a lot of these trades seems to be, hey, the team that's trading down is trading down because they really want to take a chance on someone. And a lot of times taking the wild swing doesn't work out as well as, hey, this guy's at least going to be a competent NBA player. Yeah, that's a great observation that I didn't really realize while while doing the piece. But yeah, all the players, I don't think there's a player who a team traded up for that is a project even that that was seen as a project even Matisse Thibel um uh with all the you know offensive question marks around him by the time he he was coming out in the draft I think he was seen as a sure thing defensively um and so teams knew that he was going to provide value from day one at least on one side of the floor um and and yeah that that's really interesting i think the lesson maybe for teams here is that and this is for either side of the table is that if somebody offers to trade up like i mentioned in the like subtitle of this section um they probably know something that you don't or they're probably valuing a player in a way that you're not valuing a player um Obviously, there's a bias here. There's kind of a survivorship bias of a sort because we don't see the trades who, the trades who were rejected. Right. Be- believe me, there's a lot of trades that get offered yeah. uh, in, around the NBA draft. Uh, there, obviously, there's a, the ones that end up getting leaked out is because they are meant to... Uh, make somebody look good or look bad uh every every trade proposition that doesn't get done that gets leaked out uh it has an agenda behind it Uh, so so we're i'm not gonna judge almost trades i'm not gonna judge um just uh miami not accepting uh, it wasn't miami that didn't accept four first round picks for justice winslow yeah, uh, or something like that. I'm not going to judge that because 
I'm sure there were more wacky offers in 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 every single trade, uh, in every single draft, and and around every single draft pick. Um, but but yeah, and going back to the Jason Tatum thing, and that's something that I included in the piece is that I believe at that time we didn't value big wings who could create their own shot in the way that we should have. And that's, I think, a bit, a bit of a, a fever dream of the 2016-2017 seasons where we thought that point guards were going to be the, like, the quote-unquote NBA's quarterback and that the only um, value was going to come from guys who could initiate an offense and make plays for others. And in part because of Tatum's success, but also because of uh, big wings taking on more uh, offensive initiation roles across the NBA um, as, you know, the, the main guy who brings the ball up, who makes plays for others and makes plays for themselves. I think now we value more the guy who can dribble, pass, and shoot at six foot eight. And at that point, we... The, the only guys who could dribble and shoot at six foot eight might have been seen as kind of quote unquote inefficient chuckers. And I think that was the concern around Jason Tatum. Uh, I think a lot of people was scared of him not ever being efficient in the NBA. And we lost sight of what was, imp- we lost sight that putting the ball in the basket <laughs> is continues to be the main skill at the NBA level. I mean, I certainly was one of those people who doubted Jason Tatum for exactly that reason. So I will raise my hand here. But, you know, when we're talking about bigger initiators, one of the best to talk about, future Hall of Famer Alperin Shangun, who you mentioned in the (laughs) next section. So let's sort of talk through that quickly. And I thought this was interesting because it does in a way, you know, feed forward to some of what I was talking about in the previous section of, you know, teams maybe taking wild swings, you know, when they're trading back to around the 20th pick, you know, sometimes again, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, when you're looking at trades that come after 2019, there's still a lot of time for the players selected in those ranges to prove themselves at the NBA level. But, you know, again, as you mentioned, the, answer to whether teams are being reckless in that range might depend on being a glass half full or half empty type of person. And, you know, when it comes to draft evaluation, you know, maybe not in terms of other things outside of draft evaluation, but certainly when it comes to draft evaluation, I tend to think of myself as a glass half full kind of person. But, you know, sometimes, as you mentioned in the piece, when one of the trade down targets ends up being someone in Ty Ty Washington, who's no longer with the team that drafted him in the first round, you know, you can evaluate that trade a little bit more in terms of the recent trade evaluations than you can say trades where, you know, as you mentioned, like Usman Jang, you know, it's still way too early to tell if that was a smart pick or a reach, you know, he's given where he's at in his NBA career, but for some of these, again, you know, at the point where someone's been waived already, it's pretty easy to tell, yeah, maybe that wasn't the right choice. Yeah, 100%. And I think maybe the trend, if I look back at this in two or three years and I add the 2020, 2021, and 2022 drafts, um, the top 24 cutoff maybe goes back around the 20th pick mark because three players that I mentioned, which were Kai Jones, Keon Johnson, and Leandro Balmaro, that ended up being waived during their rookie contracts. And all three players uh, that teams traded up for. Um, So, again, it might teams are getting smarter about trading down. It might be teams are getting obsessed with the wrong. I can't speak with about Jones or Johnson because I didn't really scout them, uh, but I am gonna come out right, come right out and say that I never got the hype around Bolmaro, um, and I ended up speaking about it with a lot of, you know, the guys on draft Twitter which were bullish on Bolmaro. I I never got. And I'm not. I don't want to be a hater, but 
I watched Balmaro being the fifth best player in Argentina's U18 squad. I watched them. It was a FIBA U18 Americas, and I I would like, you know, I I swear by it that he was worse. Like not that he was worse, but he wasn't as impactful as Francisco Farabello, who played for TCU at some point. Uh, he wasn't as impactful as Francisco Gaffaro, who was a bench warmer for Virginia for a bunch of years. He wasn't as impactful as Juani Marcos, uh, who's playing now for Barcelona. He wasn't as impactful as he, you know, killing it in the Spanish league, being one of the most productive players. And so I never really got the hype around him. And not just because of that, but so I didn't think that he had the offensive he he wasn't a sure thing as a shooter but he didn't have like the short area quickness or the ball handling ability to be a driver and so are you just drafting him to be a ball mover and a perimeter defender i don't think i didn't think that was going to go well and it didn't and it it, it surely didn't yeah. um so yeah sorry for going on a hater tangent uh, but th maybe I'm a glass half empty person and teams got more reckless or got dumber about trading up around the 20th pick. Uh, but there are certainly above the, that 20th pick line, there are certainly a number of trades that ended up going well. Alper and Schengen, as you mentioned, Jalen Duren seems to be a win for, for the Pistons. The Cason Wallace Derek Lively trade is too early to tell. I think it depends on which team you like the most. Uh, yeah. But that might, for now, that might be as close as a win win trade as we got for now. And the Usman Cheng, uh, there's still picks to be conveyed, if I recall correctly. But the player who was selected for now is Nick Smith. And I think he's having a solid season so like a solid rookie season not super impactful uh, so I think he's on the same uh, wavelength as Cheng has been for the Oklahoma City Thunder so that one that one will really take a couple of years to know which side we will go it is funny that you bring up the Case and Walls Derek Lively trade as you know one that might end up being a win-win you know when we Look at this sort of top 24 draft trades thing that you mentioned. You know, ironically enough, the Shabazz Napier trade is the closest to being a quote unquote win win, but really it's because neither Shabazz Napier nor the players that he was traded for ended up doing all that much. You know, they weren't yeah. negative players, but, you know, again, when you're talking about the, you know, 0.4 versus 0.2, it's like, okay, so very slight positives for both sides of the trade, I guess, but nothing too much to write home about. But the balance there with that one at 24, I think, leads into talking about the next section. And this was what I thought was maybe the most fascinating part of the article, which is after, you know, what you talked about with the top 24 of it being so clearly delineated that, you know, again, barring the one exception that proves the rule of the Markel Fultz trade, trading up was almost always the better choice. But now when you get into this section, talking about sort of the middle of the draft, which you delineated here as the 25th pick to the 42nd pick so you know very end of the first round beginning of the second round and you know as you say in the piece it's basically a coin flip i mean to go from nearly 90 percent and that 90 percent including the exception that proves the rule of the Fultz trade to 47.3 percent i mean a lot of that i think is just based in the fact that the later in the draft you get, the more unlikely it is that any of these players end up being significant long-term contributors to an NBA team. But it is really, really interesting to me that, you know, from the top portion of the draft to almost always be a great idea to trade up, it's so much more of a mixed bag when you get sort of more into the middle section of the draft. Yeah, um, that was... So the first thing is the volume of trades happening in this region of the draft between number 25 and number 42. And in one part is because teams are willing to risk more. 
And I think second, that's the part where, and you could, you know, do that same observation when we, when everyone at No Ceilings put their boards together. Like the top 20, you might have like two, three players that somebody has that aren't on the consensus top 20, right? But when you get to the number, when you get to the 30s, uh, boards start to deviate a lot. And I think I always mention this. It only takes one team to really, really like you to... It only takes one team to really, really like you to get a player that you thought was going to go in the 50s to end up going in the 30s. Right. Um, I always go back to the, uh, and I'm sure this uh, player is very near and dear to you, Nick. Uh, I always go back to Georges Papayanis oh, uh, <laughs> back in the 2016 draft. Uh, I assure you that 29 other NBA teams didn't have Papayanis in the top 50. I, I have absolutely no proof, but I have absolutely no doubt. Yes. <laughs> so, Agreed. And, and, and one team, the, the Kings end up loving him and end up taking him, I think it was number 13, 15 or... 13, or, yeah. Yeah, around that pick. So it only takes one team. That that That's basically the thing. So I think at this point in the draft, teams go and you know, say, oh, we had this player top 10 or top 15, and now it's pick 25 and he's dropping and his rookie contract, if we sign him to uh, a rookie scale contract, which is the standard contract for first round picks, um, we can get a third and four year team option and, you know, he's cheaper. So let's just go ahead and trade up in the late second round or in the early, uh, sorry, in the late first round or in the um, in the early second round to get him. And so that's why there's a lot more movement because teams, a lot of teams are certain that they found their late round gem in this, in this area. And what numbers show is that it's pretty much a conflict, a coin flip. Like, 47.3% of the teams who traded up ended up with the best player in this range. And so um, teams might just, I think the lesson here is beyond a couple of like very specific traits that I really want to get into in, in a few seconds, I think the uh, maybe the lesson here is just save those picks. Save those like... Um, you know, save those assets and, you know, try to get your player by the time you, you get to that point in the draft because he might fall because other teams might not love him like you do. Um, and you have, and if this is a coin flip, uh, if this region of the draft is a coin flip, you get more coins to flip, if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, before we get into those trades, there is one thing that I do want to mention that sort of stands out to me with this list, which is something that I've actually been talking about quite a bit with this year's draft, just because, you know, this is a draft that not only has a lot of uncertainty at the top, but, you know, also has quite a bit of uncertainty in this 25 to 45 range, you know, even more than most drafts. And, you know, something that I've talked about quite a bit with this draft in particular is the idea of if you're, you know, a team in the late 20s, so almost always going to be a playoff team, you know, is this a year where even more so than other years, and this is something that, you know, I am in favor of every year, but I think even more so this year is it's might, you know, this is a range where it makes sense to maybe go for you know, multi-year college players or international players who you're confident at least that they have the floor of being an NBA contributor rather than just taking a wild swing. And like looking at some of these trades, just a few that, you know, I want to mention before we get into the ones that you want to mention. I mean, you know, the very first trade on this list, the Pesetnik trade, you know, he was someone who, Oof. you know, real ball of clay, real project type of player, you know, who knows what you're going to get from him. And the return for him ended up including Tyrese Maxey, right? So, you know, Tyrese Maxey, you know, very, very solid NBA player on his way to probably an all-star berth, if not this year, then certainly in the near future. 
you know, some of these other trades, right? Like one of the ones that actually ended up working decently well for both sides was Tony Bradley for Josh Hart and Thomas Bryant. And, you know, I think the real win there is just that, you know, one team got two solid rotation players and the other team got one. But, you know, throughout this list, I think there are a few examples of guys like Bruno Fernando, for instance, right? Of, okay, you know, he's not someone who you think is going to be a superstar, but he's been a very competent rotation big man for the Atlanta Hawks for quite a while now. You know, it's the kind of thing where, again, you know, sure, there's the chance that the guy that you take the swing on that your front office really, really likes is going to turn out well. But, you know, a lot of these guys are just sort of the quote unquote safer picks in this range that end up working out as opposed to, you know, the wild swings on like a Teo Maladon or someone like that. Yeah. If you look at the teams who won trades in this region of the draft, you you find they won the, the trade by taking guys like Devontae Graham, guys like Bruno Fernando, guys like Willie Hernan Gomez, uh, Gary Trent Jr., um, not got not players that were seen as like huge high upside guys coming out of college or the international game, but uh, but guys who were seen like you say the more sure thing. And at, in some of those cases I mentioned, it was teams trading up for them. In some of the the cases I mentioned, it was teams getting the picks to draft them in return. Uh, Josh Hart is another case uh, of those type of guys like, oh, here's he's the sure thing. And he ends up being the most one of the players who provided the most impact in this range. So there's definitely something to it that in in this range, you really got to see if there's any like those balls of clay, you know, like I I. I'm I'm gonna talk later about Pesechniks, uh, but you know, is is there really anything to those balls of clay in this region of the draft, or do the players with high upside have already gone in the draft? You know, and I think if if the trades are any indication, uh, the guys with high upside are seemingly not here to be found. Yeah, I mean, I apologize in advance for how I'm going to butcher this, but you know, I'm going to do my best here. But I saw something recently about how basically if you're a one and done and you're not taken in the first round, the odds of your NBA career flaming out are astronomically high because if you had the potential to be worth taking a swing on in the top 20, then the teams would have. And so the fact that you're you know falling into the second round means – you thought that your draft stock was a lot higher than it was coming in. And then you have a really high uphill climb to sort of prove your worth to NBA teams that again, aren't investing as much in you because they're, you know, not taking you until I guess in the second round. So again, I'm butchering this because I don't remember the precise numbers, but it does track very neatly with what you're saying here that, you know, Hey, if you're taking someone in the latter portion of the first round, early portion of the second round, probably best to, you know, pick someone who you think at least has one or two sort of very reliably translatable NBA skills. And if that means that they top out as a 10 to 15 minute a game rotation player, guess what? By the time you get into the second round, that's way above slot value to get someone with the say 33rd pick who ends up, you know, being a valuable rotation player for you for three years. That's still a lot higher than the average for that sort of slot in the draft. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that actually leads perfectly into the next section here, which trading future firsts for late first slash early seconds never works. And you mentioned Pesechnik, so I'm just going to let you run with it here. This part of the piece, again, the sample size is pretty small. And as you note in the piece, I think that's a very good thing that the sample yeah, size isn't any I was going to say, thank God it's very small because um, this is so... Among all the trades that we discussed, there were three trades in this, you know, 25 to 42 range where the team that traded up ended up giving out a future first. Um, and those three cases were uh, Philadelphia trading for uh, Ansys Pesechniks in the 2017 draft. Uh, and they give up the future first round pick who would end up being used 
to draft Tyrese Maxey. Now, the saving grace of this trade is that Philadelphia got that pick in return for Marco Fultz. Um, and so they were able to like correct their mistake by drafting Tyrese Maxey and by making the right pick. But it was an awful trade. And I don't think I don't think this type of pick, this type of Pesechniks pick ever will ever be done again. Just because Pesechniks was 22 coming out of I think he was playing at Gran Canaria at that point in Spain. Um and 22-year-old players just 22-year-old international players don't go that high in the draft anymore. Um, last year, Memphis picked the first 22-year-old in like five years uh, when they took, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the guy, they took a guy from Turkey. Um, and I remember everybody and their mothers DMing me that day saying, who? Like nobody, nobody. It's not that they didn't hear of the guy. He was, he had been in the FIBA and junior circuits back in the day, but nobody expected him to to get drafted. Uh, and so I don't think the Pesechniks pick ever will ever be done again because also I think NBA teams have uh, done a good job of hiring smart people for for their international. Um, hired good international scouts. I think the the depth of international scouts on NBA front offices is way better right now than it was in 2017. Um, the pick so, reference was uh, Tarek Biberovic with the 56th overall pick. Yes, that 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 was the guy. So then the other two trades was the Clippers trading up for Kevin Galley in the 2019 draft. And giving up the a future first that would, you know, end up being the pick the Pistons ended up getting Sadiq Bay with, who was the best player in the draft. And then the final one, um, it was Memphis getting Deontay Davis and Brady Shagoretz. Shagoretz never played a single NBA minute, and Deontay Davis ended up fizzling out of the league after two years. Uh, and they gave up a future first that, you know, ended up being becoming Matisse Thibel. Uh and that giving up a future first. And and by the way, Deontay Davis and Raddy Sagoretz were two second round picks. And giving up, and that that leads me to the next section that trading first and not getting a first round pick in return, getting only second round picks should be a fireball offense at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where, again, logically, you think through it and it's like, hmm, okay, you know, maybe if you're trading a pick that's very late in the first round and you get more swings at it with a second-round pick, maybe it's worthwhile. But the difference between pick, you know, 25 to 30 and pick 45 through 60 in terms of the chances of them you know, as you mentioned with uh, Zagoric, even becoming NBA players at all, you know, it's the kind of value proposition where, again, if you think through it of, okay, you know, hmm, I guess maybe more swings at it is a better bet, right? Given how, you know, how much of a lottery essentially the draft is of, you know, nobody can predict it perfectly, you know, hey, maybe giving yourself more chances is going to work out well in your favor, you know. As you show with the examples here, it's like, well, you know what? Actually, the difference in value between a first-round pick and a second-round pick in terms of the chances of those guys even making it to the NBA at all, it's worthwhile to hold on to the first. Yeah, I think these are – let me put it this way. Um, there's a big um, – you know, cor- I, don't want, I don't think correlation is the right word, but – but there's a big overlap in people who listen to this podcast and people who do uh, scouting and people who play uh, manager games, right? Uh, you know, you can do NBA 2K with the um, My League thing, or you can, my favorite is Basketball GM. Where am I going with this is that if you ever play those games, you've ever, you've surely gotten, uh, a trade offer from the AI that's so ridiculously, uh, you know, skewed in favor of the AI 
that you say, nah, I'm not taking this one. Those offers are pretty much the trades that ended up happening here. Like if somebody offers the 40th overall pick in a future second for the 30th overall pick, you should say no. And that's what should have happened when Memphis offered that to Utah for the 30th pick. And they ended up giving up the pick that Memphis used to draft Santi Aldama. And Utah ended up getting Jared Butler and Jabari Walker. Or the Pistons giving up the pick for Kevin Porter Jr., no matter what you think, you know, no matter how Kevin Porter's career and personal life ended up going, uh, he was still more impactful than Justinian Jessup, Brandon Boston, and Julian Phillips, um, who they traded up for, for who they traded for Kevin Porter. Uh, and of course, like the Deontay Davis for the pick that ended up being Matisse Thibault thing. So uh, here's my thing, and, and I, I wrote it in the article. It seems like it should be obvious to not trade first-round picks for only second-round picks, but it happened on the Deontay Davis trade, and it happened two more times since. And the three times it happened, you know, the three times it backfired for the team who traded down from the first round and got multiple seconds. So, but it also goes back to, um, and this is something that in the future I might do. If you look at the teams who made the, made the trades, the Kevin Porter Jr., the team that traded down was Detroit. I don't think Detroit, Detroit, won a single trade that that's described here. Uh, the team who traded Santi Aldama and traded down for two second round picks was Utah. I don't think Utah made a single good pick in in the later rounds of the draft uh, or in the early second. So it, I guess those decisions shouldn't really surprise anyone. I think the Aldama example is particularly telling. And, you know, the one caveat that has to be given for this section in particular, I think, is just the sample size is tiny. So, you know, you're only working off the sample that you have for these sorts of things. But I think the Aldama one is particularly telling because, I mean, first of all, with both of these trades, it's literally the 30th overall pick, literally the last pick in the first round, right? So that's one thing. You know, the theoretical difference between 30 and 31 should not be that dramatic, but... You know, I think the Aldama thing is also telling just in the sense that Aldama was seen as a bit of a surprise with the 30th overall pick, whereas Jared Butler, who ended up being one of the selections that Utah traded for, who ended up going 40th, was someone who multiple people at No Ceilings, myself included, were very high on. You know, a lot of people at No Ceilings were actually even higher on him than I was. But the idea being, you know, OK, someone who's seen as maybe a quote unquote questionable choice at 30 versus someone who was seen as you know, a bit of a steal at 40. And yet here it is the evidence of, you know, in the early going of that trade, Aldama's already solidified himself as a rotation player for Memphis and Jared Butler and Jabari Walker are not exactly parts of Utah's future plans at this point. I believe neither of them are actually currently members of the Utah Jazz already. Yeah, none of them. Um, I, I do hear about the being the final pick on, in the draft in both of these cases, not in the case of, Matisse Thibel because they traded a future first that even worse was only lottery protected. So, you know, Philadelphia who ended up getting that Clippers pick uh, that they used to select Thibel could have even gotten the, the number 17 pick, uh, which would have made it worse, I assume. Um, and, and, and I do hear that the relative value of the it shouldn't change if a player is in the first round or in the second. Um, it, like 30 to 31, there's not such a huge distance. Uh, but in, like, let's put the Kevin Porter case. Detroit traded Kevin Porter for three future seconds. And future seconds doesn't mean you're going to get the, the 35th, 32nd pick. Um 
I think Justinian Jessup was drafted in the 50s. I think Brandon Boston was drafted in the late 40s. So it wasn't like they got any like assurance of their value, of the value of the picks. And this is where maybe projections come into play. Uh, uh, sorry, protections come into play. And, and teams should be better once they trade down. They should be better in protecting the pick to get some value back, to assure that they get some value back. Um, in the case of Santi Aldama, I'll come right out and say it. Once the Aldama trade happened, I texted somebody in the, in the Memphis front office and I told him, how do you guys do it? How do you guys continue to, um, you know, uh, convince people to give you this, these speaks for nothing? <laughs> that because basically, if you look at the trade, um, Utah dropped ten spots in the draft for a pick that they would that would end up being Jabari Walker. Like that's insane. I I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just in. I'm sorry that I don't have anything like super deep to say here i'm just in awe of the decision i'm just in awe well it's funny because it's not just that it was jabari walker who you know actually has had quite a decent nba career for portland given where he was drafted but that's yeah. the thing he was taken with the 57th overall pick right that's you're getting the 57th overall pick for trading down 10 slots yeah that's that to me is insane and it goes back to like at least if you're going to do something that recent history begs you not to do, which is trading your first for seconds, at least, you know, bring out the necessary protections in those second round picks you're getting back to assure that at least you're getting some value. Like maybe you can do a group of picks and say, okay, we're going to get the better one of these group of second round picks or, you know, this pig will convey if, you know, it's between 30 and 45, 31 and 45, Some, something like that. You know, get creative so you don't give up the 30th overall pick and get back the 40 and 57 because the math is just not mathing, uh, <laughs> if that's even a thing. I mean, it's a thing now. Um, yeah. Let's get into the next section, actually, which I think is you know, pretty telling along similar lines of, you know, looking at what happens when you're trading down or, you know, essentially making trades in the very end of the draft, the last quarter of the draft. So after pick 45 and, you know, again, it seems to be a sort of story where if you're trading down in the same draft, as you mentioned, you tend to lose. If you're taking a chance on trading, you know, something in the 45 through 60 range for a future second, you have a chance of doing better. And I think a lot of the reason that you have a chance of doing better is the future second might end up being, you know, in the 31 to 45 range, which you're a lot more likely to be successful in that zone than you are in the 45 through 60 range. And, you know, I've talked before about how Isaiah Thomas of the Sacramento Kings, not of the Boston Celtics. Let me repeat that. Isaiah Thomas of the Sacramento Kings being someone who is taken with the 60th overall pick, you know, he's the, almost the ultimate example of the exception who proves the rule of being a 60th pick and being an all NBA guy, being a multi-time all-star when you get into the back quarter of the draft in the 45 to 60 range, for the most part, getting someone who has an NBA career of longer than like four years is a huge win. And so, you know, if the odds of that are better when you end up in the 31 to 45 range, then if you're trading for a future second without some of the protections that you mentioned around it, odds are you're going to win. On the flip side, if you're you know trading for a top 55 protected second like the Iggy Brezdakis Cal Guy trade, you know if you're locked into that 55 through 60 range, even trading the 47th pick, you're going to get better odds at 47 than you are 55 through 60. Yeah, uh, I think here's where you know being kind of a negotiator as an NBA GM or whoever's taking the calls or making the decisions uh, comes into play because if a team is interested in moving up, uh, you can play with their quote-unquote desperation and get something that they know, um, they, they know they are giving up more potential value. And that's what happens when you trade, up, you trade away 
you know, 45 for a future second. Uh, you know, you gotta, again, it's a game of protections, but it's like, okay, if you really want, uh, you know, Lamar Patterson at number 48, you gotta give me a future second. And that ends up becoming Pat Connaughton, who ended up being a, a really interesting contributor for a few years. And so the the divide here uh, in, in this region of the draft from 45 uh, to 60 um, was that the teams who traded up, who traded down in the same draft, uh, got the, the best player in the trade one out of three times. And that was Jordan McRae. And the only reason he ended up being the best player in that trade is because the other player never played a single NBA minute. Uh, but in the cases where teams traded out and got future seconds, uh, the team could trade it down, got the best player four out, four out of six times. And in those four cases, three were, you know, really solid contributors for where they got drafted. Connaughton was one of those cases. Paul Reed was other one of those cases. And finally, the Anthony Melton. Um, so... I guess the lesson here is if you get offered to trade down or trade out, always choose to trade out and always have a, a, an out to get a player in a future draft that will be better than what's left at the back of the draft. It it should go without saying. It should go. It should be common knowledge. But getting that future second. And, and and your job as a as, as a negotiator and as somebody who you know manages assets, which is what draft picks are, is to again play with the need of the other team to if if another team called you to move up to get Jarrell Brandley, uh, and you know that you don't like Jarrell Brandley, go get a future second. Go get a future second, and the other team will know, hey, we're overpaying for this. But if we want to move up, there's certainly a, a keen interest to, to move up. Play with that interest and get future assets that you can turn into better players. So this next section was the one that maybe fascinated me the most out of the entire piece. And it's certainly the one where my assumption going in was the most incorrect. So... Let's move on to talking about the draft picks that were sold for cash. And for me, I mean, when I think of draft picks sold for cash, you know, they weren't sold purely for cash. But, you know, I think of the kind of situation of the Robert Sarver sons of just disastrously cheap ownership deciding, OK, you know, we're going to take the cash in the bag that you're offering us in exchange for this opportunity to make our team better and get a player on a really cheap cost controlled contract. Instead of that, we're just going to take the pile of cash. And yeah. you know, my instinctual reaction to that is that's really bad ownership. You know, that's just, you know, team ownership deciding we're going to be as cheap as possible. We're going to cut every possible corner. You know, we're going to sell off our draft picks for cash. You know, that's my inherent reaction to it. And as it turns out, as you've put together in the piece, the value proposition of paying cash for a draft pick is really not, you know, at all the sort of first reaction that I would have had to that kind of trade. Yeah, uh, I think, again, survivorship bias comes into play here. And the first one, I, I think different people will remind different players. I think the first one that gets remembered and it's because much of it was done uh about the chicago bulls being cheap and selling a draft pick for cash was the jordan bell trade where golden state paid uh three and a half million dollars to get the 38th pick they get jordan bell and he comes out of the gate storming and he kills it on on the rookie season and everybody was, you know, clowning the Chicago Bulls for being so cheap that they traded away the pick to get Jordan Bell. Bell ended up fizzling out of the league soon after, um, you know, minutes decrease on the second season with, with the Warriors. And then he had a couple of stints and he's not on the league anymore. Um, and so maybe the the success story here is Jordan Clarkson 
who also was traded for ca for cash. Uh, the Lakers paid uh, um, one million in eight hundred thousand dollars to get him in twenty fourteen. Which adjusted by inflation, I did adjust by inflation to you know get a, a level playing field here. Um, it's uh, two million and three hundred thousand. Um, so that's the success story. He was a contributor early for the for the Lakers, even though they were awful when he was there and he ended up being also a contributor for, but for winning teams in, in Cleveland and then Utah. Uh, but those are two cases in, I think it was 15. Yeah. Two in 15 cases uh, where buying a draft pick for cash really ends up, you know, you, I put it in this way in, in the piece is, if you look at it as an investment, as we're investing this amount of money on a player, um, in only two of 15 cases, so it, in only 13% of the cases, that investment, you saw a return of that investment. And I, I put it in, in that way in the piece. If you are going to tell your owner or the CFO or whoever is looking at the bottom line on the team. Hey, we're going to invest an average of $3 million to in, in an investment that my re, that has a 13% chance of returning any value. They're going to say no. So at the end of the day, selling draft picks ended up being a good thing uh, or at least selling draft picks ended up being supported by previous history. And I'm not ever going to blame a team again for selling a draft pick. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, again, you know, one of those things where, you know, we're talking about the asset value of the draft slot. And, you know, sometimes the person that ends up, you know, being what you get from that asset turns out to be, you know, someone like a Jordan Clarkson who, you know, puts in the work to, establish himself and stick around in the NBA, you know, again, that's the kind of thing where if you're looking at it purely from the perspective of what is the most valuable way to use the asset that is this 46th overall draft pick, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where my assumption going in was, oh, this is just, you know, ownership cheaping out on this opportunity and not, you know, as it turns out, the way that the data suggests is more accurate of, Actually, you know, this is a chance where, as you say in the piece, and let's actually wrap up by getting to that final section now, there are better, safer ways to spend your money, which is, again, not what I would have expected out of this exercise coming in. Yeah, um, I think at, at the end of the day, one of the things that I thought was, let's say $3 million is the average of a successful draft pick who ended up getting bought for bought for money uh there's a lot better ways to spend those three million to improve your team you can improve facilities you can um pay better scouts you can improve your front office you can get better uh you know better or more people in the developmental uh you know side of things you can get better coaches for three million dollars, uh, and and you can make a, a, a more long lasting investment than spending I don't know three million dollars on Key Fowler, or spending almost four million adjusted by inflation on Jay Wynn Evans, who I love coming out of Oklahoma State. I love Jay Wynn Evans. I wouldn't have spent four million dollars on getting a, a draft pick, a draft pick to draft him. Um, and so at the end of the day, what what I think teams need to do, and this is the final thing, is if you're going to buy a draft pick, at least try not to get ripped off. And if you're going to sell a draft pick, know how much that draft pick is worth. And I'm not, this is not really good audio content, but I did the math and basically teams, uh, you know, spend an average of $145,000 per draft spot with a floor of 580000 So that means that an 
if 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 you take this is taking all the uh, all those you know draft pick sales and 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 yeah those draft pick sales from the past few years uh, and and if you do that equation you can kind of do a table of how much you should sell your draft pick for. Uh, around the 36 pick mark, it should be around $4 million. Around the 56, 57 pick mark, it should be a million dollars. And and pick 60 should go for around 580,000. Uh, so that's kind of the thing of, okay, there's a correlation between the spot in the draft and how much a pig was sold for. Now, if you want to sell your draft pig, you know how you know where's the line, and you know what should be the floor, and how much you know you can ask another team for uh, without ripping them off, or if they didn't read this piece, uh, with ripping them off. All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this up? Yeah, I think the final thing is that there's a lot of things that I kind of left out that I wanted to touch on. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that could be done with this data. Uh, I think we could look at teams that were more successful in trading up and trading and trading down and teams that were less successful. I think two cases, Detroit was one of, I think, worst teams, teams with the worst records in this type of trades. I think the Clippers, uh, the Clippers saving grace is the Shea Gilchrist Alexander trade, but every other trade they did was, I think, pretty bad. Uh, Utah has a pretty terrible draft, uh, you know, draft trade record. Uh, on the other hand, Dallas, Philadelphia have done mostly smart trades. In in the case of Philadelphia, it really depends on what was the front office. At the time, same for Memphis. Uh, I think you see a change after, right after they revamped the front office and they started making smarter moves at that point. Um, and also, the other thing is, and and maybe I do this in a part two, you know, in the future future years, which trade ups, you know, which players were, is there a correlation between? you know, positions or is there a correlation between, you know, ages of the prospects or, you know, certain skill set of the prospects and if trading up was worth it. Um, so, you know, from like we, we touched on a few things here, like the safer picks generally, like the players who are seen as quote unquote safe ended up being the best trade up candidates. But that's something certainly worth looking into in the future. All right. Well, he is Ignacio Risotto. You can find him on Twitter at Airball, E-Y-R-E-B-A-L-L. And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. Be sure to check out his most recent piece on lessons and trends from draft night trades that we talked about in today's podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. And you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.